Well, I want to begin today by asking you a question. Here's a question. Do you ever get tired of waiting on God? Anyone? Okay, me and one person over there. <laughs> tired of waiting on God. You ever get tired of waiting for what God has? Maybe you've been waiting for months for that job to come. You've been waiting for years for that illness to go away. You, you've, been, you've been working and waiting for the marriage relationship to get better. Doesn't seem like it's getting better. You've been waiting for that right person to come along to enter into a relationship. And it doesn't seem like God's sending that person. Maybe some of you can resonate with that little conference we talked about because you have an estranged child and you've been praying for them and you've been waiting on that relationship to mend. It's not for your lack of prayer. It's not for your lack of crying out to God. You've been doing that, but you feel stalled in this particular area of your life. And you're waiting and waiting and waiting, and nothing seems to happen. And you know the temptation that takes place when we wait on God and nothing seems to happen. When we get frustrated, we get tired of waiting, then we're tempted to do what? Take matters into our own hands, right? God, if you're not going to fix it, I will. If you're not going to provide, then I'll find someone on my own. If you're not going to work in my life, then I'll do anything it takes. I'll fix this thing. And we have enough history in our life to know when we've done that, what a mess we've made. The consequences and the damage and the complexity we bring to our life when we take matters into our own hands. Well, if you're tired of waiting on God, you're not alone. Today, we're going to look at a godly couple in Scripture who took matters into their own hands. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Genesis chapter 16. We're going to see that they had a promise they were waiting for, decided that waiting on God was not worth it. And because they did what God told them not to do, that was against God's plan, they brought into their life problems and complexity and damage by the way, that we are still suffering from today. We'll see that. Let me set the context of Genesis chapter 16. We saw, we have seen in our study of Genesis that God gave Abram and his wife Sarai a great promise. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your kindred, and your father's household to the land I will show you, and I'm going to make you a great nation and I will bless you, and I'll make your name great so that you'll be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and I will dishonor those. Uh, whoever dishonors you, I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, you're not going to live forever, right? So if you're going to be a blessing to all the families of the earth, what do you have to have? You got to have some children. You have to have some heirs. Well, Abraham was 75 years old when he got this promise. The clock was ticking, no children, great promise, no children. And now when we get to chapter 16, 10 years later, a decade has gone by, still no children. You ever get tired of waiting on God? You ever say, God, I know you're God and I get these promises, but there's no way you can get this fixed. I'm going to have to take matters in my own hands. That's exactly what Sarah did. Now, Sarai, chapter 16, verse 1, 
Abram's wife had borne no children. Abram's 85 years old. Clock's ticking. But she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. Now, there are a lot of things wrong with that, right? Sarai had no children. And so she brought her Egyptian maid servant named Hagar to Abram. You could do that in those days. It was legal with the custom of that day to have children by a maidservant. In fact, that was called a secondary wife. It was called a pilgash. And so it was legal, just not right. There are a lot of things that are legal, but not right. Sarai says, the Lord has kept me from having children. It's his fault. He gave me a promise and then he didn't fulfill it. Now, it's True that God is the one who brings children into our lives. Children are a gift from God. We get that. But you can see the frustration in her voice. God is not going to fulfill his promise. I can't trust him anymore. I got to take matters in my own hand. If God's not going to do it, I will go sleep with her. And perhaps I, check out that, perhaps I can build a family through her. I'm going to get it done. God's not going to get it done, so I'm going to get it done. And Abram, you would think this godly man, right, would say, Sarah, no, that's not the way God has it planned for us. That's not the way we're going to do it. I have this great promise from God. He gave me the promise in Genesis chapter 12. He renewed the promise in Genesis chapter 15. I know he's going to do it. Abraham doesn't do that. He just agreed to what Sarah said. Throughout Abram's life, we see this amazing thing of on-again, off-again faith. Man, sometimes he is a man of faith. Sometimes he's a man of no faith. And here we see him abdicating his spiritual leadership and agreeing to Sarah's plan. Her solution, of course, was Hagar. You remember in chapter 12 of Genesis when, uh, earlier in Genesis, was in Genesis when uh, Abram and Sarai were in Canaan and there was a famine in the land. They had gone down to Egypt and then that's where Abram lied about Sarai being his sister instead of his wife. Pharaoh found out he was his wife and sent him away and sent him away with a lot of possessions. One of those possessions or servants would have been Hagar. So Hagar's now with them, maidservant of Sarai, and she says, I'm going to get it fixed. Hagar is the solution. Look at the end of verse 4. Well, look at, let's, let's go first to uh, verse 3. So after Abram had been living in Canaan for 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took the Egypt, her Egyptian maidservant Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife, just like a a father walking a bride down an aisle gave her to, to, to Abram. And he didn't waste any time. Verse 4, he slept with her and she conceived. 
And that's when the tension comes. Marriage was always to be between one man and one woman for life. Period. The end. Polygamy was never to be. Certainly this concocted plan was never to be. In the Old Testament, God allowed it, but there was always tension. Some of you experience that today in some blended families, right? There's some tension there. Hagar is now pregnant. And notice what happens in the end of verse 4. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to what? Despise her mistress, despise Sarai. The word despise means to become little in one's eyes. She began to look down on Sarah. She said, God has blessed me, but not Sarah. God has given me a child, but not Sarah. She's still, she's still barren. And she thought in her mind, because God has blessed me, I'm going to take her position. I will no longer be the pilgash. I'll no longer be the wife of second rate. I will be the first wife. And Sarai will take my place and I'll take hers. It's inevitable. Sarah became little in her eyes. And the tension was so thick you could cut it with a knife. And guess what Sarai did? First she blamed God, right? Who do you think she's going to blame next? Look at verse 5. Then Sarah said to Abraham, you are responsible for this wrong I'm suffering. Abraham's got to say, time out. This was not my idea. This was your idea. You concocted the idea. You brought her to me. Oh, but he was a little responsible, wasn't he? You're responsible for the wrong I'm suffering. I put my servant in your arm, and now she knows she's pregnant, and she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. What's Abram do? He already abdicated his spiritual leadership in going along with the plan to begin with, and now he just continues to give in. He turns one mistake into another, and he shows no pity on this servant who is carrying his child, he says in verse 6, your servant is in your hands. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, and she fled from her. There's nothing pretty about this story, is there? Sarai gives into the flesh. She blames God. She uses Hagar. She blames Abram, she mistreats Hagar, and Hagar uh, runs away. And Abram is part of the plan from beginning to end. He allows this mistreatment to happen. Hagar runs to protect herself and her baby. Anytime we attempt to accomplish God's plans by our methods, we make a royal mess of things. Other people get hurt. Things get complicated. We act out in our flesh. We inflict pain to other people. We blame God and we blame those around us. 
Sarah's dissatisfaction with her situation and her unwillingness to wait on God's solution led to what? Deeper dissatisfaction with herself and deeper dissatisfaction with her situation and the desire to hurt others, and she makes a mess out of things. Abraham's unwillingness to be the spiritual leader that God called him to be and give in to Sarai's plan led to tension in the home and punishment on Hagar. And by the way, it led to hostility between Israel and the descendants of Hagar's son. We'll see in a second that still exists to this day all because of abdicated leadership. We'll get back to Abram and Sarai in a little bit. For now, the story turns. The story turns to Hagar. She, she's running away. She's running away from the situation, and she's heading back to a place that is familiar. Look at verse 7. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road of Shur. Where does the road of Shur lead to? From Canaan to where? Anyone know? To Egypt. She's going back home. She's going back to her family. She's going to be pregnant. She doesn't know what's going to happen there. But she's headed back home. And he said to her, Hagar, the servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? We'll stop there for a second. In this verse, there's a reference, the first reference to an angel or the angel rather of the Lord. And Lord is in all caps. So the angel of Yahweh. Anyone know who that is? Not an ordinary angel. We're going to see in a little bit. Most theologians believe the angel of the Lord appears about five or six times in the Old Testament. Most theologians believe this is the pre-incarnate Christ appearing in different situations in the Old Testament. Now think about it. John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? He was with God in the beginning. Nothing was made except by Him. And so Jesus is the creator. He was there. He didn't just come to be as a little baby in a manger in Bethlehem. He's always been. So it shouldn't surprise us that he is active in the Old Testament. The angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ. Some powerful points as he meets with her. First, we're going to see in a minute that he promises only the things that God can promise. And then in verse 13, Hagar calls him God. But first, look at the promise he gives Hagar. Look at verse 9. The angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. I always have to stop after that. That's a tough assignment, isn't it? You ever think God only gives easy assignments. He gives some tough ones. You have been mistreated, but I want you to go back and submit to her. Stay with my plan. I've got some things for you. 
The angel added, I will so increase your descendants that they will become too numerous to count. I got plans for you. Then the angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now with child. You're going to have a son. His name, you shall, you shall name him Ishmael. Remember that word El is God. Ishmael means to hear. Ishmael means God hears. For the Lord has heard your misery. He'll be a wild donkey of a man. Not exactly a flattering description. <laughs> and his hands are going to be against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he will live in hostility toward his brothers. A wild donkey of a man. He's going to live in the desert. Uh, he is going to be independent. He is going to be headstrong. Everyone's going to fight against him, and he's going to fight against everyone else. Aggression and antagonism. Do you know who Ishmael, what group of people he's the father of? the Arab nations. Do you think there's still hostility between Israel and the Arab nations? Like they don't even acknowledge them as a state. When we, we just got back from Israel, and, they, and in Israel they don't stamp your passport. I asked why, and someone told me they don't stamp your passport because there are countries that won't let you into the, their country as you travel, if Israel is stamped on your passport. Hostility. One, one commentator says it this way. While we must not apply these traits to every descendant of Ishmael, we must not apply these traits to every descendant of Ishmael, the centuries-long hostility between the Jews and the Arabs is too well known to be ignored. The Arab nations are independent people dwelling in the desert lands, and resisting the encroachment of other nations, especially Israel and her allies. Man, one thing I love about Scripture is this. It is as relevant as the news right now on your iPhone. If you don't believe there is hostility between the Arab nations and Israel, just Boot up your, you don't boot up iPhones, right? Just click on your iPhone. That's an old term. Sorry about that. <laughs> click on your iPhone and read the news. Every day something's going on. Happened right here in Genesis 16. Right here in Genesis 16. Started what you're going to read in the newspaper today or tomorrow. When Hagar sees the angel of the Lord, she knows it is not simply an angel. And she names this person, El Roy, she knows he is God. And she knows he is the God who sees me. El Roy, look at verse 13. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. You're not just an angel. You are God, and you see me. Maybe some of you need to meet Elroy today, the guy who sees you. Because like Hagar, you feel alone and isolated and mistreated, rejected, and on your own. And, and maybe you're taking a road back to someplace you shouldn't go. We'll talk about that in a second. 
Hagar did exactly what God told her to do. She returned. And we can only surmise that she told Abram and Sarai the whole story because how else would Abram know to name the child when the child was born? What? Ishmael. And he's born, and he is a wild donkey of a man, and we'll follow him throughout the rest of Genesis. And at the end of Genesis chapter 16, Abraham is 85 years old, clock's ticking for Sarah, no children. The promise has not been fulfilled. And the plan they concocted didn't work. Well, maybe it did work. One writer has said this, in whatever a man does without God, he must fail miserably or succeed more miserably. So they succeeded. It was just a miserable success. Five lessons from this story. Let me go through them fairly quickly. Here's the first one. Waiting on God is always worth the wait. I know it doesn't feel like it. Man, I know that. I know there are times when you want to take matters in your own hands. I know you've been waiting for a long time. And I know that there are things that you want to do to fix the issue, to fix the relationship, to fix the non-relationship, to fix this job situation, to fix this health issue. And yeah, there are certain things we can do in God's plan and in God's timing, but when we take matters into our own hands and step out of God's will, we will always make a mess. Waiting on God is always worth the wait. Realize that when you sin and when you step out of his plan, you may have success at that point, but it will be a miserable success. And when you wait on, when you don't wait on him, complexity enters your life and damage enters your life and problems enter your life that will be there for a long time. Is God gracious? Absolutely. Can he overrule some things we do? Absolutely. Are there consequences to sin? Absolutely. And sometimes even when we're living on the other side of sin in God's great grace, we still have to deal with some of those consequences. Waiting on God is always worth it. Number two, consistent obedience demands fresh faith. Abraham's, Abraham's faith in chapter 15 faltered by chapter 16. And we can learn from that every day we have to have a dose of fresh faith. When we live on yesterday's successes, spiritual successes, we get stale today. We cannot depend on what happened yesterday in our lives to grow us today. That was good growth maybe, and we learn from that and we're growing from that. But today is the day that we have to be in God's word. We have to be stretching ourselves. We have to be growing spiritually every day. So right before we left for Israel, I got one of these watches that count your steps, right? You have those? Some of you have those? Kind of annoying, actually, aren't they? 
And so, and so we checked out one day and one day like, like 25,000 steps and 13 miles. And man, you go the other day and that's fantastic. And then the next morning, guess how many steps? Zero. It's not fair. They should average them out, right? <laughs> Zero. Because you got to start again today. And some Christians are like a, old high school athletes who had great, great success in high school and they're 60 years old and they're still talking about their high school basketball games. Great success spiritually 10 years ago, but let's talk about today. Consistent obedience demands fresh faith. When our faith is stale, when our walk with God is stale, when our walk with God is stalled, we are in a dangerous situation. Number three, decisions we make today matter for tomorrow. Do you believe that? Decisions that we make today matter for tomorrow, either with great blessing or with great consequence. We are, each of us, me, you, all of us, we are one step away from a bad decision. And when we make that bad decision, there are a lot of consequences that could come. We're one step away from taking a wrong path. And when we take that path, it may be the easy path. It may seem like success, although we learn later it's miserable success. But there are consequences to that. And each of us have to realize that we are one decision away and the decisions we make today matter for tomorrow. It is so easy in our quick fix-it world. Everybody wants five steps to fix their marriage. Everybody wants five steps to parenting. It doesn't work like that. It does not work like that. You gotta be in it for the long haul. There are no five easy steps to anything in life. Growth is difficult, growth is hard. It takes energy, it takes effort, it takes depending on God, it takes stretching ourselves. And we have to realize in this, in this quick fix world that the decision we make today, although it is the easiest decision, it can have terrible ramifications for tomorrow. The decision that Abram and Sarai made in Genesis 16 still have consequences to this day. Look at the world scene. Number four, God's name was Elroy in Genesis 16, and guess what? It is still Elroy today, isn't it? Hagar was an Egyptian servant who had been used and mistreated. Thinking she was alone, she headed back to her home country, but she was never alone. God pursued her. God met her, God stopped her, and God let her know that he saw her in her difficult situation. And God wants you to know that today. I, I don't know what's going on in your life. You may feel um, like God's not going to come through on his promises. 
You may feel like you're alone. You may feel like you've been rejected. You may feel like you've been mistreated. You may feel like life's unfair. I, I don't know what's going on in your life. But I know this. God is still El Roy. He sees you. He comes to you. He encourages you. He ministers to you. He takes you back to where you need to go. Maybe a tough assignment. But he will always be with you. If you've given up on God, I want you to know this. He has not given up on you. If your sin is so great, you would say God would never forgive me. That is a lie from Satan. It does not come from God. Whatever you've done is not fatal. No sin is beyond his forgiveness. No bad decision beyond his redemption. His name is still Elroy. One more thing. Believers are never shut out of God's plan. Believers are never shut out of God's plan. Would we all agree that Abram and Sarai kind of blew it, right? Can we agree with that? Pretty badly. After those great promises. But guess what? God never renegotiates his promise. God never goes back on his promise. And he's going to return to Abram and Sarah and give them exactly what he promised. So you're a believer here today, and you may say, you know what? I can relate to that. I made some bad decisions. I've done some stuff I shouldn't have done. I've taken a path I should not have taken. I just want to remind you today that God will never shut you out of his plans. His grace can cover all the steps in the wrong direction. His grace covers the sin of past. And he's a God who comes and delivers on his promise. Do you believe that? Will you return to him? Because he's pursuing you.